Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. This week's podcast is brought to you by the Girls of Ennismore. A story of women, revolution, and friendship in 20th century Ireland, The Girls of Ennismore is a sweeping historical novel by best-selling Irish-American author Patricia Falvey. On the brink of the Irish Rebellion, two girls from vastly different backgrounds form an unlikely friendship, even as each struggles to overcome the barriers of class and birthright. The Girls of Ennismore by Patricia Falvey is available now everywhere books are sold. More information is at kensingtonbooks.com. A science story, huh? Is NYU scientist a... I felt felt right. I was so And I just thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Glider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week, we're bringing you two stories about technological advancements. A blind athlete tries to run a marathon by himself, and a flighty student tries to commit to a single project. Our first story this week is from Simon Wheatcroft. It was recorded in October 2016 at the Manchester Science Festival in Manchester, England. Come on. <laughs> Lay down. They're not looking at you. Shh. <laughs> this is a bit that always takes up. No. Down. Don't you dare look at people. If you smile, it runs off stage. So I'll just try and bear that in mind. Okay, hi everybody. My name's Simon. People may have noticed that I am blind. That's what the dog's actually for. And just to give people an idea of what I can see, because blind means quite a lot of things, um, I have light perception. So as I look out, I can't see anybody, but I can tell there's... Um, a light at the back of the room, not too sure what that light is, but there is a light. So bear that in mind as I sort of start my story. And my story doesn't start with the technology, it starts with an idea. An idea was to climb to the top of a mountain, propose to my girlfriend, go on, you know, with so much effort, there's no way she's going to say no when you've done that. <laughs> so I've never climbed a mountain before, but how hard can climbing a mountain be? So around 5 a.m., at the, the base of a mountain. It was half dome in, in Yosemite. We began a hike. Two hours later, I was thinking, I always thought mountains were, were quite steep. This seems really flat. It turned out for two hours we'd been walking in the wrong direction. <laughs> really struggled with that. My girlfriend can see. So I thought, how did you not announce the mountain was getting smaller the further we got away? But eventually I turned around, found the mountain. Mountains are steep. And mountains actually are hard to climb for people who have never thought to do it on a whim. And as I began to climb, um, I was beginning to slip and trip and stumble. And this was basically because I couldn't see, but I didn't really want to quit. You know, I really wanted to get to the top and propose. So I really stuck with it. But the more I stuck with it, the more I began to sort of trip. And there are a few sort of cliff faces on that mountain. I thought if I fall off, it's going to ruin the day. I really need to have a think about this. So the halfway point, there's like a, you can have a little seating area. 
sat down, had a really difficult conversation, and that conversation was basically, we're quitting because I can't see. And that was something that was very difficult to live with. But I did still propose, my girlfriend said yes, got married in Vegas a couple of weeks later, spent a few more months in America, and then I returned to the UK. But now I returned to the UK, this idea of quitting, because I couldn't see, really plagued me. It was very, very difficult to live with. So I sat on myself for one day, I thought to myself, what can I really do to push against this and do something that perhaps someone who's blind wouldn't really take on? And that was running. I thought, how hard can it be to go outside and learn to run alone? At that time, very fortunate to live near some football pitchers. So I walked down to the football pitchers. I positioned myself between the goalposts in the middle. I just went up and down the football pitch. At the same time, I was really grateful that an app on my phone came out called Runkeeper. What was interesting about Runkeeper is, for the first time, you didn't have to look at the screen to get the information. You know, being distance or pace, it came through audio. So I got to find out that I can't run very far and I run really slow. <laughs> but at least I had this information. So I carried on training. And then it got a little too dangerous to train on the football pitch. And that was thanks to the dog walkers. They assumed I could see. I assumed they would move. <laughs> it was time to find somewhere safer. Again, at that point in time, really fortunate to live in an airport. The airport was finished. The infrastructure was not. So that meant there were a lot of closed roads, no cars, no pedestrians, no dog walkers, just closed roads. So my wife would drop me off at a closed road. What was interesting about the closed road is WL lines. So I could run, feel the WL lines underfoot, turn around, run back down. Just up and down the road. And what I did begin to notice is the app I was using on my phone would always trigger 0.3 miles around the time it hits some greats underfoot. So I thought to myself, what if I compare what it feels like underfoot with distance markers and learn to run the open road? So one day my wife dropped me off. I waited till she left. Built up some courage, run up and down this road, stepped out into a dual carriageway. I told myself that cars move and just ran down the road. Got to the bottom of the road, burst into tears. Couldn't believe what I'd done, you know. A few weeks ago, I was on a football pitch, went to a closed road. Now I was running the open road. But there's one thing I did know, and that's if I didn't get back to the closed road before my wife did, she was going to kill me. <laughs> so now I could run quick, got back to the road, she picked me up. For a few weeks, I kept with this sort of facade that I was training on, on the closed road. But I just wait till she'd leave, step out into the open road, and I began the process of learning to run. There was always, thankfully, something I could use underfoot. Sometimes it was the curve of the pavement, so if one foot is higher than the other, you can tell if you're drifting. Sometimes there'd be grass at one side or bush on the other, so you can tell if you're drifting again. There were a few obstacles like lampposts, road signs, traffic lights, trees... The only way you find them is by running into them. But you mark that on Runkeeper and you make sure you're the other side of the pavement the next time and you avoid it. There's one obstacle that really does stick out for, for a male runner and that's traffic cones. <laughs> Very unfortunate height. And people like to move traffic cones. <laughs> so eventually just throw them in the field. But can on training, had to break it to my wife. Quickly banned from running, never let out the house ever again. But if you mope around for long enough, you're straight back out and you're training again. <laughs> so now I was back out and I was training. And I thought to myself, I wonder how far I could run. Maybe I should enter a race. So I went on that day and I entered a 100-mile race. So from 
beginning to train to race day was six months. So six, I don't know if anyone does sort of ultra or anything, but six months is a very sort of short time frame to go from nothing to 100. It usually takes about two years. So fast forward to race day. While I learned to train solo, no way I could compete solo. I can't memorize a uh, hundred miles. It was just not possible. So I used a series of guide runners they would run alongside and we'd just run the entire race together. Now people might remember I trained at an airport. Airports are generally renowned for being pancake flat. I picked a race in the Cotswolds. <laughs> I didn't see the elevation gain map on the website, so I assumed it's on road, it's gonna be relatively flat. Cotswolds are not flat. Never run a hill before, so after 50 miles of hill, I was broken. Physically, mentally, I was a mess. Did what I always do, cried. So crying, sat down, I thought, can I quit? I didn't want to quit again. There was no way I was going to quit, but I was willing to fail. The only way you can fail in that race is if you can no longer stand. So I stood back up, I ran 33 more miles so I could no longer stand, and then I was removed from the race. But in six months, thanks to a piece of technology, I'd gone from not being able to run to running 83 miles. So it was a great achievement, and since then, I continued to compete. I did 5Ks, 10Ks, 50Ks, 100Ks, lots of different races, but I'd never quite done a marathon. So I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll enter the New York Marathon. Now, what's interesting about New York is it's tantalizing and close to Boston. Boston is where Runkeeper was developed, I thought, why not run from the headquarters of Runkeeper to the start line of New York <laughs> and run the marathon? That's around 260 miles. <laughs> so I did do that. It was a beautiful adventure. But getting back from that, I thought, you know, uh, technology allowed me to train solo. Perhaps technology would allow me to compete solo. So I thought, where could a blind person go and compete alone? I thought, well, the desert. There's not much to run into. You can just run around there. It'll be fine. So I found a race, called the race director. I said, I've got a great idea. I'm blind, I want to run your race alone. Will you let me do it? She said, yeah, okay, maybe we will. Have you got something that's going to help you with navigation? Absolutely, absolutely. Put down the phone, couldn't believe she believed the lies. <laughs> so now I had to make something to run across the desert alone. After a lot of procrastination, I'm eight weeks away from the race. Eight weeks, still no way to navigate. Thankfully, that late in the day, I managed to partner with um, IBM, and together we did create a piece of technology which would allow me to navigate through the desert. Real simple technology. Basically, desert, no matter the shape, even if it's a circle, is a series of straight lines. A straight line is a bearing. Bearing navigation is really simple, so you can make something that makes sure you're on the bearing. As soon as you deviate, it can bring you back on to the bearing. So we used beeps, much like a parking sensor, so the beeps would then bring you back in line. You'd always know you're on the right course. Silence was the intended mode of this system. If it beeped, you know you're going wrong. Fast forward to race day. So we only had eight weeks to develop this, so quite rapid. We made a few key assumptions, because you got to when you've got quite a tight time frame. The course is not going to change. There's going to be no obstacles. The race organizers assured me of those two things. So we turned to the race. Seven days in the desert. You've got to survive in the desert as well. So the countdown starts, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Simon, we've changed the course. What do you mean you changed the course? This is hard-coded. There's nothing I can do. They went, yeah, we've changed it. It's like, great, what have you done to the course? They went, we've moved it 100 metres to the right for the first six miles. 
I was like, well, that's not too bad. Now, rather than navigating through silence, I've just got to navigate through some beeps. <laughs> so it turns out you can navigate on beeps. So, you know, day one, it's around a marathon a day. It works. Open plane navigation, it turns out, you can do blind, fantastic. Running through the desert, I can't believe that I'm managing to do this. You know, I started running on a football pitch. Now I'm running through a desert alone. Absolutely fantastic. Finish day one, you know, on a real high. Day two, we go out, head back out again. Open plane navigation, working really well, really well. Running through what I imagine is a nice open desert. All of a sudden, take a massive blow to the face and I hit the deck. I'm like, what? What happened? What happened? Now, I'd been assigned a ghost runner. We'd basically follow him, make sure I don't die. They come running over. So you're right, you're right. I'm like, yeah, what happened? What happened? What happened? They went, you ran into a flagpole. It's like a flagpole. <laughs> Is there a lot of flagpoles? Went, no, there's only one. In 800 kilometers of desert, I'd found the one flagpole. So I stand back up, do what I always do, cry. Then carried on running. Finish day two, head out day three. Again, feeling great. This thing's working. Get into the A station. Race organizer comes over again, so you know something's going to happen. Simon, there's some objects. What do you mean there's some objects? There's a rock field. Okay, kind of rock field. Just a lot of rocks. Okay, so head out, rock field. Approach the rock field. Admit the ghost and says, are you sure you want to do this? This looks really bad. I'm like, how bad is it? He says, well, there's rocks from the size of your fist up to a loaf of bread, density of sprinkles on a donut. I like, right, okay. Let's give it a go. So I head into the rock field. I think we all pretty know what's going to happen when you're in a rock field and you can't see. So I'm trying to go through this rock field and I'm just slipping, falling. I take the skin off the bottom of my left foot. I tear the IT band off my left leg. But I don't want to stop. So I push through this rock field, get to the end, finish the day. Tell myself if I can stand the next day, I'm going back out. I could stand the next day. It would have been a lot easier if I couldn't. I could have stayed in bed. So I stand up and I go back out. And I go back out and, again, there's another rock field, but at this point I've sustained some phenomenal damage with the point where if I can't go in forward, you know, my adventure and career may end in this desert. So I made the very difficult decision to walk away. Well, actually, I was carried away, couldn't walk. And I left that race. But I'd proved, thanks to technology, that I could go from training solo to competing solo. And it was a fantastic achievement. So now I'm back in the UK. I want to go back to that desert. I want to finish this time. So now, go back to the old training route. Now, the old training route, I probably should have mentioned, is next to not only dual carriageway, but roads that 70 miles an hour. So you make a mistake by a few inches and it's game over. So first day out, back from injury, my wife drops me off. Ten minutes later, she gets a phone call. You've got to find me. I'm hurt. So she comes up, she finds a trail of blood, which leads to me. And it turns out what had happened is someone had left a burnt-out car in the middle of the pavement. I obviously couldn't see it, ran straight into it. It went into my shin. It sliced open my leg. And I've now got a nice scar on my arm where I tried to save myself falling forward and just slice straight through my arm. So now, a lot of blood. I'm thinking to myself, I need to get some technology to solve this problem. I ran into a flagpole, ran into a burnout car, can't keep running into things. So now, 
I'm working uh, again with IBM, and we're working on some ultrasound technology, which basically uses haptic feedback, bounces out signal, comes back, then it vibrates along my body, so I can know to go left and right and avoid the obstacles. So the idea is hopefully Boston next year to become the first blind person to ever compete solo in a city marathon. And this is all thanks to technology. It managed to get me out there, running, alone, and have managed to achieve fantastic things. So that's my story. Thanks for listening. That was Simon Wheatcroft. Simon lost his sight at the age of 17 due to a genetic eye disorder. Now he's worked with IBM Watson to develop an app for blind runners called eAscot. Our second story today is from Dale Markowitz. It was recorded in August 2016 at the Wild Project in New York City. The theme was The Unknown. So it was the summer before my senior year at Princeton, and I was spending it in the computer systems research lab, which was on the third floor of the computer science building, and it was this windowless, peopleless room. And I was spending it studying something called HTTP network caching proxies, which were approximately as fascinating as they sound. And I was so bored, I could barely get myself to go into the lab in the morning. I don't think I got anything done that summer. But the whole reason that I had committed myself to that was because in the fall, I wanted to apply to PhD programs in computer science. So I needed something to put on my application. And the fact that I was so bored doing this really gave me pause about committing six years of my life to it. But at the same time, I feel like I had already flip-flopped what I wanted to do so many times. I mean, I came into the university determined to be a theoretical physicist. And then a year later, I decided, you know what, my true calling is math. And then a semester after that, I switched to computer science. And it wasn't just a matter of academic self-discovery, because I'd always had a sort of interest ADD. Before, when I was younger, I'd done every extracurricular activity you could, from ice skating to ceramics to acting and improv and guitar, piano, violin, bass guitar, saxophone. And I don't actually retain any of these skills to this day. So I'm, I'm not sure if the breath was worth it. And this was actually in pretty sharp contrast to my dad, who in utero knew that he wanted to program computers for a living for his whole life. And he would sometimes say, Dale, you know, I think that you're sort of a mile wide and an inch deep. (laughs) And I, I was pretty insecure about this, because I thought, you know, maybe I should just focus on something. So I didn't want to give up research quite yet. Well, it was fall, and I got on campus for my senior year. And it was time for me to pick the topic for my senior thesis. And the senior thesis was sort of a big deal because it was like the capstone of your, your time there at Princeton. You were supposed to have learned how to think critically. And for me, it was more than that because wanting to do this PhD, I, I wanted to actually prove to myself that I had the concentration that I could focus on something for so long. But I decided that since this was like the last hurrah, I did not want to work on HTTP network caching proxies anymore. I wanted to work on something that was easy to convince people was super cool. So I thought about it for a little bit, and I came up with the idea that I would do my research in neuroscience, because I figured that no matter who you are or what your interests are, you know, brains make you think. So So I did some research online, and I found a professor in the neuroscience department who was doing something that I thought was really appropriate, uh, that I could do that would still be computer science related, and it was a field called brain-computer interfaces. 
Now, a brain-computer interface is, is usually begins with a device called an EEG, or an electroencephalogram, which is something that you put on your head, and these electrodes on your scalp measure changes in electrical potentials there. And from this, we can interpret the data and try to decide if you are concentrating, or asleep, or excited, or bored. And the computer interface part comes from the fact that we can take this data and use it to control a computer. So I'd read about people looking at EEG signals to help uh, people control bionic limbs, or you concentrate really hard and a drone flies. And I figured if I worked on that, I wouldn't have any problem justifying why this was worth my time. So I convinced this professor to let me work for him. He really needed a programmer to help him build this app to make experiments easier to do. So we sat down together and we decided on an experiment design which would work like this. We would bring people into the lab and we would set them up with one of these EEG devices. And then I would build this really, really simple video game for them to play where they would see a picture of a face and all they had to do was click right if the face was a woman's face or left if the face was a man's face. And they just had to do this for 20 minutes. And while they were doing it, I would look at the electrical signals coming out of the EEG, and I would try to interpret whether or not they were focusing on the task or not. And then I would use this data to give them feedback to either encourage them to focus more or to punish them for not focusing enough. And I felt like that was like a really appropriate topic for me since I already had so many attention issues. So I spent a couple of months working on the original prototype and setting up the experiment. And then it was time for me to calibrate it, and so I was my own first test subject. So I got this EEG helmet device, and the way it worked was there were these tiny sponges that you put on the electrodes, and you had to soak them in contact lens solution because that helped them make better contact. And so I, I, I took this device, and I, I put it on my head, and I had to uh, weave the electrodes underneath my hair, and the whole thing was like pretty sticky and uncomfortable. And then I did my boring video game for 20 minutes, and it was not a pleasant experience. And worse, I realized very quickly as I started looking at the data uh, that the very subtle, quiet neural signals of my attention were being overwhelmed by all sorts of other electrical activity, like if I moved my shoulders, or if I blinked too much, or if I uh, breathed too excitedly, that would just completely corrupt the signal. So I had to restructure the experiment so that I would be focusing, unblinking, unmoving for a minute, and then I would get a 20-second rest period where I could blink, and then I would do it again, and this would go on for 20 minutes. And that made the data a lot cleaner, but as I started to build my algorithmic model, I realized there still wasn't enough signal there, and I couldn't tell whether or not I was concentrating, and this made me quite concerned, because I'd already spent so much time, I didn't have much time left for the thesis. So I went to my advisor, Ken, and I said, Ken, I don't know if this is working. And he said, if you have a very noisy signal, you know, something that helps is that you just collect more data. So instead of doing the experiment for 20 minutes, do it for 30 minutes. And I thought, that sounds very unfun, but I'll just recruit somebody else to do it. So I got my boyfriend, Joe, and he volunteered his scalp. And I hooked him up to the device, and he did it for 30 minutes, and he didn't blink. But when I looked at all of that data, even 30 minutes worth, I couldn't make any sense of it. And at this point, I had only two months left, and I was starting to really flip out. So I went to Ken, and I said, Ken, we have only two months left. We have to do something else. We have to cut our losses. This isn't going to work. Our very premises about why this would work are flawed. And Ken said, slow down. You just need to collect more data. So do it for an hour. And I thought, Ken, you haven't done this experiment before. 
And I said, I feel like there are ethical problems with that, like it's so boring and it's so uncomfortable and physically strenuous. And then he said, "Ah, but we're paying them, right? We're paying them like $40 an hour, right? I said, yeah, and he said, and you want to graduate, right? And I said, yeah, I want to graduate. So there wasn't much that I could do to fight that. But I had to find new participants because I wasn't going to do it and my boyfriend wasn't going to do it. So I sent out this email to the university listserv with the subject line, get paid $40 an hour to participate in a brain-computer interface experiment. And my experiment slots filled up like instantly because everybody thought they were going to be a part of this sci-fi minority report-like thing. And so my participants came into the lab, and I started putting the contact lens solution on the device and wiring it up into their hair, and then I started to explain to them what, was, what they were going to be doing for the next hour. And frankly, I felt pretty judged, because I knew that they knew that I knew that I had been very misleading in that email. <laughs> but I had to graduate, so. And, and not all of my participants even made it through the whole thing. One girl gave up after 20 minutes because she had this throbbing headache. And another boy, he sat through the whole thing, except he said I I had to throw away the garbage because he was sure he fell asleep at least twice. (laughs) Well, I looked through their data, and some of them had definitely blinked when they were not supposed to have blinked. But even the hour's worth of data that was reasonable, well, it's kind of funny. So I built this model to predict whether they were concentrating, and the model was 52% accurate. What that means is that if you came into my lab and I wired you up with this device and I watched your brain for an hour and then you asked me whether you had been concentrating or asleep, I was 2% more likely to be right than if I flipped a coin and said, heads, you're asleep. But at that point, there was no point in going back to Ken because I only had two weeks left and there was no way I could change the experiment. And I had agreed to run so many participants in the study, so I need to recruit people faster and faster. And it was too hard to go through the listserv now because of scheduling, so I had to dip into my friends. And I had them come into my dorm room at 2 a.m. And I had to lie to them a little bit about what they would be doing there and how cool it would be. But nobody said that there wouldn't be a human cost to science. (laughs) Well, I collected all my data, I finished, and it was the weekend before the thesis was due. So I locked myself in the basement of the neuroscience building. And I had to write up 50 pages of a report, and it's funny because I know that science is not about results, that null results are just as useful as positive ones, but it's hard to say that you did nothing when you spent an entire year and hundreds of dollars on an experiment. So I spent a lot of time in that thesis talking about the previous work and the future directions and how that 2% of accuracy was really promising. And so then I printed it. And then I had to have it bound in leather because at Princeton, all theses are kept in the, uh, the archives forever so that you and your children and your children's children can always look back on your contribution. <laughs> so, so I got it printed and bound and I got it sealed with the Princeton seal and I submitted it and I graduated, which was great. And then something else interesting had happened during that whole time, which was that I had been applying to my PhD programs, and I got accepted at the University of Washington. And during that last week of school, when I submitted my thesis, I got this email from my would-be PhD advisor, and I think that he really wanted me to come because I'd gotten two scholarships to go there, and he was emailing me asking what projects I was excited to work on. And so I thought back on my thesis, and I, I figured, you know what? 
even though I didn't get many results, I probably got through the toughest part of science, which is when you're working on something that you suspect is garbage, but you just have to keep on pushing through to confirm that it really is garbage. <laughs> so I figured that if I had done that, then I maybe could survive six years of a PhD program. But part of me wondered, maybe there are types of people in this world that just really love finishing things. They like putting that last period at the end of their conclusion section and submitting their thoughts to the archives of their lives forever. And maybe I'm more of a beginnings person and a middle person. And maybe that was my calling. And perhaps PhD programs already had enough of these finishers and I would be better spending my life elsewhere. So I wrote back to my professor and I told him, I don't know how to say this, but I have to turn down the offer. I can't join you next year in Seattle. And I moved back to my childhood house in New Jersey and I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do the next year. But part of me thought that maybe that was all right because if there was one thing that I was good at, it was beginnings. Thanks. That was Dale Markowitz. Dale is an engineer and data scientist at OkCupid, where she spends endless hours contemplating the mechanics of romance and attraction. She graduated from Princeton University, where she bounced from physics to math to neuroscience before landing on a major in computer science. She blogs at medium.com slash unquarked. That's at U-N-Q-U-A-R-K-E-D. This project was supported by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Nissa Greenberg, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Manchester Science Festival and the Wild Project for hosting these shows, and to technology for making everything better. Wait, uh, hold up the recording. Looks like my computer froze. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast comes from Kensington Publishing. From an idyllic rural manor house to the teeming streets of Dublin during the Irish Rebellion, The Girls of Ennismore by best-selling Irish-American author Patricia Falvey is a sweeping story of women, revolution, friendship, and class in 20th century Ireland. The Girls of Ennismore is on sale now everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit kensingtonbooks.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 